Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We start our fall season this week with what might be the biggest show in the United States, Titian, Woman, Myth, and Power at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. My first guest is Nathaniel Silver, who curated the Gardner Museum's presentation of the show. The exhibition reunites Titian's greatest series of mythological paintings for the first time in, get this, more than 400 years. The Gardner's focus on Titian's work extends across two contemporary works, one by Barbara Kruger and a work by Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly. We'll come back to those later in the season. As for the Titian paintings, in 1550, Prince Philip of Spain, the future King Philip II, commissioned Titian to make a group of pictures. Among them is the Gardner's 1559-62, The Rape of Europa. Others of the sextet are at the Prado and in a bunch of collections in the UK, including the Wallace Collection, the Wellington Collection, the National Gallery in London, and the National Galleries of Scotland in Edinburgh. The exhibition is on view in Boston through January 2nd, 2022. On the occasion of the show, the Gardner Museum has published Titian's Rape of Europa, a consideration of the Gardner's picture. The publication was edited by Silver and published by the Gardner and Paul Holberton Publishing. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about 25 bucks each, We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, talking about Louise Fishman's drawings. But first, Nat Silver, after the break. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Sean Scully, The Shape of Ideas, featuring the artist's most significant works. The exhibition, organized by the Philadelphia Museum of Art, examines Scully's contribution to the development of abstraction over a span of nearly five decades. Highlighting the close relationship between the artist's paintings, drawings, prints, and pastels, these works are rarely shown together. The Shape of Ideas presents 49 paintings and 42 works on paper that reflect the many phases of a long and varied approach to art making. At The Modern through October 10th. Information at themodern.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Nathaniel Silver, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me. As you well know, between 1551 and 1562, Titian created six monumental paintings for King Philip II of Spain, pictures he called painted poetries. What do they depict, and why did Titian choose the subjects he chose? The six paintings that Titian created depict collisions between gods, the gods of Mount Olympus, and mortals, most often uh, royal mortals, princes and princesses. They tell of stories of, of love, of violence, often sexual violence, of death, of desire, and, and of, of gazes and the consequences that gazes and collisions between the creatures like this, so gods and mortals, can have. We don't know exactly 
who chose the subjects because we don't know a huge amount about the commission itself. Although we have a lot of letters after it began between Titian and Philip that narrate the process and the, the interactions and dynamic between them. And so from the best we can, we can assess, Titian and Philip met in 1548 when Philip was on his first big tour of Europe. He was 21 years old. Titian was in his 60s, so he's really an accomplished painter at this point at the top of his career with huge successes behind him, whereas Philip is kind of just on the edge of, of taking over this global empire, of inheriting this global empire. And they seem to come back together in Augsburg in 1550, so two years later. And we think that's where the conversation about these paintings took place in Augsburg. It seems that Philip asked Titian to paint a series of works, a large number of works, both religious altarpieces, because of course Philip was the great Catholic ruler, and mythological paintings. Now, mythological paintings were the prerogative of sovereigns, of rulers, and certainly Philip would have been familiar with cycles like this in his own family. Mary, Queen of Hungary, uh, his aunt, had commissioned several mythological scenes from Titian. They were from Ovid's Furies. And we know that at this time, Ovid is the most common source for the myths, the myths of the gods of Mount Olympus in Europe. And so it would have been accessible both to Titian in Venice and to Philip in Spain. I suppose it, it seems almost like a foregone conclusion that they might settle on Ovid's Metamorphoses as the principal source. That said, it's not the only source. Titian's certainly looking at other ancient sources when he's telling these stories are recounted by different ancient authors. They're engaged with by many artists, both ancient and modern, and he's looking at this whole panorama of sources. And I think that's reflected in, in what he calls his paintings. As you mentioned, painted poetry is the Italian word that he uses in his letter to Philip is poesie, P-O-E-S-I-E. And by using that word, he's soliciting a direct comparison with the poetry of Ovid. He's soliciting a direct comparison with poetry because he wants his art, he wants his paintings to be considered on the level of written art, on the level of poetry. And at the time, poetry was considered more important than painting. So he's soliciting a comparison directly between his own art and that of Ovid's, and he's elevating himself in, in doing so. Of course, Titian had friends in Venice at the time who, who were poets and writers and painted their portraits. Is there any particular reason why at this time, the, the 1550s and early 1560s, that Titian might have been interested in stories about the interactions between gods and mortals? I don't know if there's something particular about this one moment, but there is something about the the kind of artistic latitude that these stories offer. They're, you know, stories with protagonists, but also multiple secondary figures. They're stories that take place both in earthly settings, but also in supernatural settings. So there, you know, for example, there are monsters in some of them. So it, there's an there are artistic opportunities here, which Titian certainly knows. He's painted mythological scenes before, maybe most famously for the Camerino, for Alfonso d'Este and Ferrara. He knows that it's an opportunity that doesn't come up very often because, again, as, as I mentioned, it's really the prerogative of a ruler to have a, a great mythological cycle in his or her residence or palace. And he's found in Philip an incredibly enlightened patron in many respects. And I say that because Philip seems to allow him an enormous amount of artistic latitude. It, it's not even clear that Philip is actually specifying which Ovid stories. It seems that Titian has a lot of chance to choose which stories and how they're depicted. And, and I think there, you know, we can be a little more specific about that. I mean, there, there are reasons why he chooses like Danae and Venus and Adonis first. But by and large, he finds in Philip a patron who's willing to let him do things the way that he sees best to do them and hopefully we'll receive payment for. And that's a little bit of a touchy subject because half the letters that Titian writes are about how Philip isn't actually paying him, or at least not on time and not as much as they agreed. And so this is a, a constant bone of contention between them. Although, of course, Philip, air quotes, allows Titian to live in Venice and not at court. Yeah, very true. You know, and, and that's interesting too. Titian is this kind of non-resident court painter to 
sovereigns across Europe, and Philip foremost among them, as you, as you mentioned, Titian never goes to Spain. And after they meet in Augsburg, that's it. I mean, he starts sending the paintings to Spain, but then Philip is moving around and Titian's paintings, the delivery of Titian's paintings follow Philip in his court throughout Europe. So you have paintings delivered to Madrid. You have one delivered to London when he gets married to Queen Mary. You have paintings delivered to Brussels. Then he comes back to Spain. You have paintings delivered to Toledo. And finally, he brings them back to Madrid, really at the conclusion of the cycle. So the two of them are very much kind of constantly on the move, but not necessarily in, in each other's orbits. And, and staying in Venice allows Titian access to his workshop. You know, the assistant who he values allows him access to the, the supply chains that he is most keyed into. So for certain types of pigments, for example. Also, I think the distance as well gives him that kind of latitude. He doesn't have the, the king kind of walking into his studio from time to time to point out a figure who he thinks is missing or something or to paint out a figure that Titian's just created. Not that Philip maybe would have done that anyway, but, but there's, no, there's no chance of that. You know, Titian has a lot of independence, and so he can keep working on other projects as well. One last thing on kind of the conception of the group, if you will, before we get more specific about your painting, which, of course is The Rape of Europa. It's the last picture in the cycle that Titian painted, although maybe he painted, maybe there was talk of painting one more. Art historians generally agree that these six pictures were painted in, in pairs or, in, or, or to be hung in pendants. Which of the others was The Rape of Europa meant to be a pendant to? And, and why does that matter? How does that pairing or pendanting, if you will, manifest itself across the two pictures? As you mentioned, as you point out, Titian decides to paint these six mythological scenes as pairs. And we know that because in a letter to Philip, after he delivers the second of the six paintings, the Venus and Adonis, he says to Philip, I want you to compare my depiction of the female nude in the Danai, which you already have, which I sent you already, to my depiction of the female nude in the Venus and Adonis, the former from the front and the latter from behind. And it's this facility in with the human form that you can see here that shows off my accomplishments basically as a painter. What a great painter I am. And that cues us into this, the fact that there are these direct formal relationships between the pairs of paintings that Titian is actively soliciting Philip's interest, his gaze, in making comparisons between pairs of paintings. So he then goes on, but the third painting chronologically he paints is Perseus and Andromeda. And he says in one of the letters that it will be accompanied by a, the story of Jason and Medea so that it'll be, the third painting would be Perseus and Andromeda. The fourth painting would be Jason and Medea, except he never paints the Jason and Medea. And we don't know exactly why, but that is abandoned. He then finishes Perseus and Andromeda, delivers it, moves on to the next pair, which is the, the two paintings of Diana, the Diana and Acteon and Diana and Callisto, and then comes back at the very end of the cycle with the Rape of Europa to give Perseus and Andromeda its pendant, and he decides that that will be the Rape of Europa. So there's a little bit of a, a an adjustment in the middle of the cycle. We don't know exactly why he chooses these particular stories to pair, but certainly I think it's, it's reasonable to assume that he chose the first two subjects because they, they were subjects he was familiar with and subjects that probably Philip was familiar with. You know, Danai, Titian had already done a famous Danai for Cardinal Farnese. It was known across Europe as the sexiest picture in Europe. And so if, if Titian said, yes, I'll paint you mythological scenes, it's reasonable to assume that, that Philip would have thought, oh, like Danai that Cardinal Farnese had. And so he might have expected a Danai as one of the series. And, and Titian creates a new version of, of his Danai for Philip. He then moves on to Venus and Adonis, which is, again, it's a composition that Titian has worked with already. So he's kind of warming up in a way with that pair. You know, he's, he's giving Philip compositions that he feels comfortable and conversant in and familiar with. And then with Perseus and Andromeda, he kind of jumps off the deep end. He, as far as we know, he's never done a Perseus and Andromeda before. And you can see it, the kind of testament to that is in the, the abandoned elements of the composition 
that the National Gallery in London has identified with technical examination. You know, originally Andromeda was not on the left side of the painting. She was on the right. Originally she was lying down. She wasn't standing. Perseus, his legs were flipped around. These are major compositional changes, nothing like we see in any of the other paintings. And so it's it's clear that Titian kind of struggled to accomplish exactly what he wanted to in that painting. And he painted his way through the problem. And I think, you know, that's interesting too, from the point of view of, of his sort of creativity and his creative process, because you then see him doing that in different, to, to differing extents in the Diana pictures as well. Not quite as many changes, but still quite a few. And then he really kind of hits his stride at the end with Europa. There's, there are almost no changes in it. I mean, the, the slight change to the bull's tail and a little adjustment to one of the contours, and that's about it. We will come back to the bull's tail in a moment. Of course, we'll have images of both of these pictures on the show page on manpodcast.com. Let's get into the to, to Europa and the Europa story. So briefly, what is the, the Europa story that Titian is giving visual life to? The story of Europa comes from Ovid, and Ovid tells in the Metamorphoses of a, a princess, Europa, who is picking flowers in a field with one of her maidens, and she becomes the object of lust of the, of the king of the gods, Jupiter. And in order to get close to Europa, Jupiter transforms himself into a bull. And by doing so, he can insinuate himself amongst a herd of cattle that are nearby these women picking flowers. Now, as soon as Europa sees this bull, she notices him as the most beautiful bull of the bunch, but doesn't realize that he is Jupiter, the god, disguised in order to get close to her. She goes over to him with some of the flowers she's picked and arranges them in a garland on the bull's head. And at that very moment, the bull essentially grabs her and carries her off, abducts her, and carries her off across the ocean with her companions waving in the background, kind of helplessly trying to assist her, where he takes her to the island of Crete, Jupiter rapes her, and ultimately their progeny become the Minoans, the, the founding civilization of Europe. So really the rape of Europa is no less than the legendary foundation story of, of Europe, European civilization. We'll come back to that too. <laughs> so, so how for Titian does it come to be a marine story? Well, this is interesting because Artists in general, there, there's a long tradition of depicting the story of Europa, and of course water plays an element, a, a role in it. But in general, if you look at precedence, it's not the principal pictorial element. It's mostly a terrestrial story. Titian transforms it into a maritime adventure, essentially, or a maritime abduction, depending on how you want to, which parts of it you want to discuss. And in doing so, it's an interesting decision because it's, it's novel and novelty is a major element, compositional, you know, a strategy in all of these paintings. Titian is, is not illustrating Ovid. He is finding a new interpretation. He is creating novelties within each of these depictions that are both unique to his telling of the Ovidian story, but they're also unique in the, the visual history of these, the visual tradition of these stories. And by creating a maritime scene, he beautifully aligns the composition of Europa with the composition of Perseus and Andromeda, which is, of course, another maritime story. And it allows him to re-envision Europa as dependent, essentially, to Perseus and Andromeda. I think that was probably a big driving factor, motivating factor. It also is, is sort of interesting in terms of where Titian is painting these works. He's in Venice, and of course, Venice is known... And not so much for its land holdings, but for its maritime empire, for the way it ruled the seas. And, it, you know, the fact that he envisions these two stories as these kind of maritime tales speaks also to his, his familiarity with port scenes and with, with the nature of water and the interaction of air with, you know, kind of the, the sea air and the different kinds of sunsets and sunrises you see in maritime scenes. Although, as Titian often does, he makes sure to include something that sure looks like the Dolomites from which he came. <laughs> Absolutely. And in, and, and in the picture of Perseus and Andromeda, he includes a waterside city, which you know is meant to be the kingdom of Ethiopia, which looks an awful lot like Venice. So, it, you know, there, there are certainly references to that the would have resonated with him and, you know, probably would have, would have resonated with, with Philip as well. So while we're talking a bit about it, the relationship between Rape of Europa and Perseus and Andromeda. What about the changes Titian made to the tale of his bull interested you? 
and why did they interest you? <laughs> well, one of the things that's, the, I mean, so one of the things that's kind of cool about the Europa painting is that it's the last of the series and there's almost, there are almost no changes to it, as I mentioned. It just shows that Titian has really prepared himself at this point, whether it's in drawings that don't survive anymore or in oil sketches, we're not quite sure. But he's very confident when he comes to paint it. And that's also demonstrated in the technique. Uh, our conservator, John Franco, when he went to clean this painting, uh, observed that Titian's technique is incredibly fast and it's, he paints very thinly. And you can only paint that thinly without making changes if you really know what you want to do. Titian's change to the tail of the bull is that he originally envisions the tail as curling up and facing towards the sky, and then he changes his mind and elongates it back over the cherub who's riding this dolphin-like monster behind Europa who's being abducted by the bull. You know, we don't know exactly why Titian did it, but I think it's reasonable to assume that it draws more attention uh, to the cherub behind Europa and to the connection between the bull in Europa and the dolphin and the cherub. And if you look carefully, you realize that the, the cherub is riding the dolphin in a position that looks awfully like the precarious position of Europa with legs splayed, you know, one arm gripping it and, and slightly, well, looking as if it might fall off at any point. And that's exactly how Europa is, is balancing on the back of the bull in this incredibly precarious position, which, which speaks to the precarious nature of her, of her predicament at that point. You know, I think that's very deliberate by envisioning the cherub in that composition. He's kind of poking fun at Europa's plight, which is a pretty dark thing to do. But frankly, there is a lot of very dark humor in Ovid. And Titian, as you mentioned, had a lot of poet friends like Aretino, for example, and would have been closely familiar with the kind of wordplay and the kind of dark humor that Ovid used in the Metamorphoses. So in doing so, I think he's, he's not illustrating Ovid. The cherub isn't mentioned in Ovid, but he's giving visual form to the kind of spirit of Ovid, you know, retelling the story in a new way, but in one that resonates with its ancient origins. I haven't seen the painting in a couple of years for <laughs> obvious reasons. But my memory is that, and I see in JPEGs, that you can see the pentimenti of where the bull's tail had been on the surface of the painting. And then, of course, the other thing that jumps out at me is that the bull's tail, as it ended up, as, as Titian finished it, echoes the shape of the sea creature in Perseus and Andromeda. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that's another great example of how Titian is drawing visual connections between the pendants. He extends it further, you know, the shape of the cherub, the composition of the cherub's body in the sky over Europa echoes very much that of Perseus in the Perseus and Andromeda who's dropping out of the sky to save Andromeda, almost again as if sort of poking fun at this sort of slightly gangly hero. You know, similarly, the the idea of having these two as maritime scenes also helps to create a resonance between them. And then, of course, the, the central features of these two paintings are these kind of monstrous animals. In one, in Perseus and Andromeda, it is actually a sea monster, this, this gorgon. And in, in the Europa, it's, of course, the bull who's been transformed into this kind of, well, who in Ovid's story and, and in the tale is this, this ravening beast trying to rape a woman. And yet Titian paints the bull not so much as an angry, sort of evil-looking character, but as a slightly naive-looking animal almost, uh, you know, a very cow-like creature with his kind of wet pink nose and watery eyes. And he looks at the viewer as if to say, like, who me? So it's, it's a, little, a little ambiguous. Titian leaves some ambiguity in, in how the viewer is meant to interpret these stories. And I think it's that ambiguity which allows for multiple interpretations. There's that, but there's also that Titian is getting the entire story into a single painting, which when I wrote my notes, I described as narrative flattening, which is a phrase that I should probably never use again, but kind of, kind of is sort of what's going on here. So was that or this getting the entire narrative into a single picture common or unusual? And should we take anything from Titian's doing it here? Yes, that Titian was a brilliant storyteller and that he's often appreciated as an amazing technician and how his technique and style transforms the history of Western European painting. But 
frankly, that just as impressive is his ability to rethink a story to its very core and to use the canvas in such a way that it not only re-envisions the story to give it the emphasis that he wants, but in a way that also alludes to the moment before and the moment after what is depicted in the central foreground. So you have this kind of sense of imminence of something that is about to happen, as well as the aftermath. And that that's very complex visually, because of course you don't have pages and pages of a notebook or a book to tell a story. You have one single canvas, so you have to somehow figure out a way to if you're going to approach the story like that, you have to figure out a way to use the foreground and the background and differing scales of figures. And, you know, how, how do you conceive each compositional element in such a way that it doesn't take away from the main thrust of the story? You know, he does this beautifully in Venus and Adonis. You have Venus and Adonis, their interaction right at the center of the picture, the kind of principal you know, re-envisionment of this story is that Adonis is leaving Venus rather than the other way around, because in Ovid, it's Venus leaving Adonis. And so you have the kind of pining of, of this, this older, more powerful woman for a young man, young, very beautiful man, and one who she knows is about to meet a pretty grisly fate, even though he doesn't realize it yet. But in the background, you have this catalyst as to how they ended up in bed together. Venus's son, Cupid, accidentally pricked her with one of his arrows, which is what set her off down this path, lusting after Adonis. And Cupid is in the background to the left in the painting, sleeping under a tree. And so this is, this is a cue to the, the informed viewer as to how the two ended up together, spending the night together. And then in the far background on the right, you have her in her chariot in the sky and this kind of beam of light coming down from it, which is presumably aimed at this moment, the site in the forest where he's gored by the wild boar. So you really have the full, the full range of expressions of emotion and the entire story start to finish. You mentioned a moment ago that Rape of Europa was kind of a, I don't know, a late ad into the series for Philip II. Why might Titian have thought that a European origin story, mythological European origin story, of course, would have been a good fit for Philip II? And do we know if Philip II ended up agreeing? We don't know too much about Philip's reaction to the content of the paintings. He, in the many letters between the two of them, he doesn't really give us too much insight into what he likes and what he doesn't like beyond things like, oh, there's a seam in that painting, for example, so sort of technical comments. I think we can make some educated guesses or suppositions. You know, Philip was a very young man when he commissioned these paintings, and they unfold over a decade, so he obviously ages in that time. He also comes into his inheritance, which is a, a global empire by that point. So it's large parts of Europe the story of the or the origin story, the legendary origin story of Europe must have resonated with an individual who ruled much of it, but it also included parts of Africa through his Portuguese connections, the Americas, of course, and even the Far East and the Philippine Islands are named after King Philip II. And so we have to remember that many of these stories of these kind of foundation myths, these, these origin, they're all, or, Ovid's kind of recounting origin stories, these moments of, of the gods coming down from Mount Olympus and interacting with mortals and the mortals being mostly royalty, you know, they're, they're stories of power and it's the kind of power on a global scale, both a mortal and a supernatural scale that must've resonated with Philip. You know, he was, of course he was a mortal, but to many of his subjects across the world who never saw him, but who were affected by every decision that he made in every part of their lives, he was a kind of God. And, you know, just to draw the connection a little bit closer, you know, he, the Habsburgs create this whole series of foundation myths about the family dynasty themselves that traces their own lineage right to Mount Olympus. So the idea that there are gods and goddesses from Mount Olympus in these pictures might also have resonated him with him in that sort of almost familial sense. But I, I think, you know, rather than taking it too literally, I think more metaphorically, the idea that decisions he made could have extraordinary consequences 
but also consequences that weren't always maybe the consequences he wanted, consequences that were out of his hands, must have resonated with him too. You know, the gods get into trouble too. <laughs> it doesn't always go the way that they plan for it to go. And so that, you know, sort of reminds him that he's human maybe a little bit. According to the National Gallery in London, uh, where this show originated before going on to the Prado and, and now to Boston, this is the first time in 400 years that these pictures have, have been together. You were in London in March of 2020 when, when the show opened. And of course, now, now they're in, in your building in Boston. What are some of the things you've noticed or maybe even learned about them by having them together? So much. <laughs> I mean, it's been fascinating to see them at all of the different venues. I, I, so I was fortunate to see them in London, which was during the opening week, the National Gallery's version of the show, which happened to coincide with the outbreak of the global pandemic, and then forced the closure of the gallery three times. And then I, I saw them in Madrid very briefly when I went to accompany our painting and see it unpacked in Madrid for their version of the show. And now in Boston, where it's just so wonderful to have all the paintings together, as you said, for the first time in, in over 400 years, it's, it's enormous. One of the things that you notice is the evolution of Titian's technique. And that's, that's fascinating because from the Danai all the way through to Europa, you can see how he is experimenting increasingly with looser handling of the, the brush, so the contours in particular of his figures. And you can see the, the difference between Danai and that of Europa are dramatic. You could say that aspects of Europa's figure are almost like quasi-impressionist studies. Her left hand in particular on the bull's horn, if you get up really close to that, it, it doesn't really look like a bunch of fingers. It kind of looks like a few sausages. But Titian knew that if you stand back from it, it all resolves in your mind and that really speaks to a a change in his technique that's tracking very closely the evolution of the poesie and their delivery over the course of a decade it's not something that is just perhaps a coincidence or something we're noticing now it's something that Vasari had actually mentioned he talks about a transition in in Titian's technique and he specifically mentions Europa as a kind of high point in this and we know that that style had a couple of that technique had a couple of consequences one was that in in Spain as well as in northern Europe these court patrons like Philip II or Mary of Hungary who are receiving Titian's paintings as Titian is beginning to paint a little bit differently are not entirely familiar with this this style of painting. You know, they're more used to court painters like Antonius Moore, who carefully delineate and describe every little detail, collar detail, and you know, flourish of the dress and jewel that the sitter is wearing. Whereas Titian is beginning to suggest more than describe. And Queen Mary of Hungary calls this out in a letter to uh, Queen Mary, the prospective bride of Philip II, when she sends her a portrait of Philip II, actually one that we have in the exhibition by Titian is on loan to us from the Prado. She says to Mary, well, you have to put this painting in a good light and stand back and look at it from a distance in order for it to really make sense. And that signals to us that the idea of looking at Titian's, the style that Titian is using is singular and it's, it's not customary yet. Where in Venice, it, it may be much more familiar. In Northern Europe, it's, it's really not yet. And so Patrons are, are kind of beginning to grow an awareness of a, of a new, you know, change, a sort of transition in the arts. And it's one that becomes very poignant very quickly. You know, the Titians and Phillips collection become a point of reference for artists after Titian dies who come to the Spanish royal collections and copy from them. So Peter Paul Rubens, for instance, makes a copy of The Rape of Europa. Velazquez then comes back and works the composition of Europa into the spinners, you know, his famous painting in the Prado. And you can trace painters inspired by Titian all the way through to the 19th century, you know, to Manet even. So to say that the transition in his technique and his style that is unfolding during the delivery of the poesie to Philip II has a transformative effect on the history of European painting and representation is no hyperbole. It's, it's absolutely something that you can see in the galleries, and it's something that Titian's contemporaries are picking up on at the time. And I think the other thing that's just so wonderful to see in these paintings are the visual connections between the pairs. And there's a, there's a reason why 
I chose to hang them in pairs and that, you know, every venue was different in our show, but I decided in Boston that we should see each of the pairs of paintings together so that our visitors could try to make some of those formal connections, the visual connections that Titian embedded in the paintings that he intended Philip to see, you know, even if they're not that familiar with Titian's work or with, with Philip's patronage or with Ovid's stories, you know, they're, they're visual similarities and they're deliberate and they're meant to be observed and appreciated. And, you know, some of the most beautiful ones and the most dramatic ones are in the Diana pair, you know, Titian reimagines Diana's sacred spring as a river. And by re-envisioning it as a river, it allows him to connect these two separate canvases because he draws the water source through one painting and into the other. And so there's a, there's a single compositional element that unites the two, as does the mountains behind them. And he also uses it to divide each composition. So Diana Nacdion and Diana and Callisto, the, the outsiders from the sacred realm of Diana. So on one side of the river in Diana and Acteon is Acteon, who's not meant to be there, who's stumbled upon this forbidden scene. And in the other one, on the other side, you know, on one side of the river is Diana, on the other side of the river is Callisto, who's being cast out of the sacred spring. So he's using them as not just as, as you know, beautiful opportunities to paint water and landscape, but as formal devices, as part of the story and as, as signifiers. And I think those kinds of connections are, are fascinating to see when you bring them, when, when you bring all the paintings together and, and you see them in the pairs. And then you can also see how Titian expands beyond that and is thinking of connecting the different pairs. It's almost like you can think of the whole series of them as a symphony and as the pairs as different movements of the symphony. And it's wonderful to listen to the movements and it's also wonderful to see, to listen to the whole symphony. You note that painters were copying and riffing on these pictures into the 19th century, but into the 20th too, of course. I mean, Pierre Bernard's great 1919 World War I concluding celebrating painting is the abduction of Europa in Toledo, which is full of references to your Titian from the arc of the bull's back to the island that Bernard paints in his lagoon, which is an inversion of the mountains in the distance in the Titian, and I could keep going, but nobody, nobody wants to hear me talk about Bernard. The feminist response to these paintings, and particularly your painting, is a part of the Gardner's presentation. Barbara Kruger has made a work for y'all, and Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly have, have made a work. I'm going to leave those alone because they're all going to be on the show in the next month. <laughs> but I do want to raise what A.W. Eaton, who brings feminist philosophy to art history and who teaches at the University of Chicago, has argued in her writings. She's written that because the picture, your picture, eroticizes rape, that what she calls an ethical defect diminishes the painting aesthetically. You've obviously lived with the painting, at least of work, <laughs> so far as we know, for several years, and now you have the opportunity to spend time with both it and, and Titian's other painted poetries. Has writing about this picture and working on this multinational project given you any ideas about whether Titian's eroticization of rape, if you will, diminishes the picture aesthetically? I think Titian is an incredible painter, and we don't have to think any less of his accomplishments as a painter or even this picture in particular because he is eroticizing an act of sexual violence, of mythological sexual violence. These were stories that were seen in Titian's time very differently than they are seen in our time. One of the things we talk about in the exhibition is the way in which sexual violence was really a focus of many works of art in Titian's time and of many stories, legendary stories, the rape of Lucretia, the rape of Europa, in Titian's time for their consequences. So the rape of Europa, the consequences being the foundation of Europe, the rape of Lucretia being the overthrow of the Roman imperial system and the establishment of the Republic. They were seen for their consequences and not for the injustices perpetrated on the women who are the victims at the center of these stories. We see this very differently today. And I'm not saying that in any way to diminish 
impact and the horror of sexual violence. I'm saying that in order to make sure that we keep our eye on the period understanding of these while also seeing them in our own time. And I think that's really important because I think both are crucial. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, well, I just, it's just how Titian saw it in his own time. Every generation sees paintings in a new way. And if paintings by the old masters are to re remain relevant today, then we need to think about what they mean today to all of our visitors, to visitors who maybe aren't interested in Titian, to visitors who don't know Ovid very well, you know, but, but who have encounters with these great works of art, and they're profound and lasting and memorable. And we want to hear what they have to say, and we want them to help us to understand something new about these paintings as well. I don't think the fact that Titian is painting this mythological scene of sexual violence or imminent sexual violence in no way diminishes from his accomplishments, but it adds to the complexity of understanding these painters today and in their own moment. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's every reason instead that we should pursue that. Adding complexity to you know, someone's biography or their career and trying to understand not just its appealing facets, but also perhaps its horrifying facets, doesn't in any way diminish that, that story. If anything, it makes it far richer and far more worthy of attention and study. I think we're in a moment when we want to encourage art museums particularly to complicate history rather than simplify it or reduce it to representation. And, and I think that the conversation that the gardener has built around these pictures. So not just the show, but the Kelly and the, or the Kellys and the Kruger are, are a part of that. Finally, you note in your acknowledgments to the book that accompanies the show that you wrote the essays in the book during the pandemic, when libraries were closed, when you didn't have access to all the things we're all used to having access to. I'm pretty familiar with that experience myself. And I'm, you know, this doesn't really have anything to do with the show. It's just kind of a bit of an historical note. How do you think that experience of having to write a couple of essays in a book absent a library and library resources impacted or changed what you wrote? Well, you, as you know, you have to become very resourceful. I relied a lot on online booksellers. I also relied on, you know, our own wonderful curatorial library at the Gardner and some books I had luckily checked out from the Harvard Library before the shutdown. But it, it also led me to discover what a wealth of sources, historical sources, are available online, either by open access or through JSTOR, and articles that can be downloaded from different academic platforms or, you know, people's own, you know, profiles on, uh, oh God, what is a good website called? <laughs> Academia.edu. Yes, thank you, academia.edu. And, and, you know, that, that was only part of the battle. You know, the other part was, you know, trying to negotiate time to write on top of time to work on top of splitting childcare duties with a spouse who's also trying to work in the same household as our, you know, two-year-old son who, who we have no assistance with at that moment. And it was a new kind of challenge. And I'm, I'm very grateful to my family for helping me through that. And then, and that was only part of the challenge for the show because that, that was our publication. But then there was actually trying to reschedule and reprogram the show, which an exhibition with loans coming to the United States, not just which hadn't been to the United States before some of them, but also loans which from institutions which had never before loaned works of art. The Wallace Collection had never before loaned any work of art outside its institution. And the Perseus Andromeda was the first. So th this was a whole nother level of challenge during a pandemic, which, you know, we're so grateful to our partners, the Wallace Collection, you know, National Galleries in London, the National Galleries of Scotland and Edinburgh, the Prado, the Duke of Wellington for working with us to make this all possible, not just possible full stop, but possible during a pandemic. You know, if you had approached me in April 2020 and said, well, you know, what's the show going to look like and when is it going to be? I, I wouldn't have had a good answer for you. And it's really thanks to the collaboration of all of our partners and, and the teamwork that we were all able to get through this together. We were able to stage the exhibition. We were able to bring it to Boston. And we're, we're so grateful to have it here at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum through the 2nd of January 2022. Nat Silver, thank you.
Thanks so much, Tyler. Great to be with you. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century. The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works. Photoflux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color. And In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S. Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, presenting Three Centuries of American Art, Antiquities, European and American Masterpieces from the Fayez S. Seraphim Collection, showcasing more than 200 works from Impressionism through Abstract Expressionism, Pop, Minimalism, and Contemporary Art. MFAH.org slash Seraphim Collection. Welcome back. Next up, Amy L. Powell joins me to discuss her survey, A Question of Emphasis, Louise Fishman Drawing, at the Cranard Art Museum at the University of Illinois. The exhibition is the first survey of Fishman's works on paper, and it's also the first museum exhibition of Fishman's work since her passing earlier this year. The exhibition is on view through February 26, 2022. The exhibition catalog, it's really good, was published by the museum. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $40. Amy Powell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into Louise Fishman's drawings and your exhibition, and indeed the really good catalog, let me note that I've been looking forward to welcoming Fishman back onto the program on the occasion of this show, but that she suddenly died at the age of 82 at the end of July, just a week or two before you started installing this exhibition. What about the confluence of her passing and installing this show pretty much all at the same time has impacted you? Has Have you come to be thinking about? I appreciate that so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been really tough, for sure. Installing the exhibition, I think I this would have happened anyway, had she not passed away one month before we opened. I'm remembering our very first conversations about her drawings. I can just hear her voice in my head telling me, you know, there are things happening in these works on paper that don't necessarily happen in my paintings in terms of a certain sculptural quality or almost architectural quality to particular series or whatever that might be. So I kind of remember a lot of our, and I'm replaying a lot of our conversations and about her works on paper that would have happened anyway. And so in her works on paper, Louise convenes people together, certainly in her Angry Women series that uh, you and she spoke about when, when you last interviewed her in March 2016, where these are works on paper where each one has in text dedicated to a different angry woman, angry Louise, serious rage, angry Jill, angry Joan, angry Marilyn, each dedicated to one or more women in her life. No last names, you know, so there are multiple Jones, for instance, when Joan is mentioned. And I realized standing in the gallery, you know, I had to go to work and all of the work was here and unpacked, waiting to be installed when she passed away. I realized that I wasn't alone. You know, I was already, not only is she so fully present in her work through her attention to gesture and the way that she really used painting, not only to figure out how to work and make work, but to figure out how to live, not just survive, but really thrive against, you know, everything she was up against. She's here. I mean, there's such a presence of her, but also of everyone that she brings with her. And that's not just, you know, the women she herself was attached to in her life, but there's so much room in the work for us as viewers to attach. So I've really taken some solace in that. You know, being with the work has been incredibly helpful, even even while I'm I'm grieving. And absolutely, you know, along with her her spouse, Ingrid Nubo, and um, her family, and just really keeping them in my thoughts while I'm here with with the work in person. There's an entire essay about the Angry Women drawings, uh, which dates to 1973, I should add, by Catherine Lord in the catalog. 
it's mostly about the angry women drawings. It wanders in, in, in fun and really great ways. I highly recommend it. It's it's a super fun essay. <laughs> oh, it, it's mostly about a portrait of myself as a yeah, man. But it starts with the angries. Anyway. It does start with <laughs> angry, which, so yeah, yeah. Catherine Lord, the terrific artist and historian was commissioned to write an essay on Louise's Angry Women series for the WAC exhibition catalog. And that essay essentially got those drawings into the show. And other shows. And other shows, yeah. She had known about them and heard rumors about them and so essentially started her long friendship with Louise around then, talking about them, thinking about them. And I had, Catherine had given a paper on Louise's work and on this subject of this painting of myself as a man in conjunction with Helene Posner's um, terrific paintings retrospective at the Newberger Museum in uh, 2016. And I knew that that was a paper that happened, but hadn't been published. So I reached out to Catherine Lord to see if she would be interested to, to revise that for our catalog. And I'm so glad that she did. WAC was a Connie Butler project at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles that traveled, including to the National Museum of Women and the Arts in Washington. In your catalog essay, you note that Fishman's drawings are, quote, a queer feminist case study for both their world-making potential and their challenge to narratives of genealogy and inheritance in abstract art in the United States. How do they do each of those things? So Louise's drawings are queer because they are both lesbian feminists. They're attaching to lovers. There's dedications. There's all kinds of gestures back and forth. And they're also making their own art history, I think, among her interests. So one of my favorite drawings in the exhibition is on loan from the Jewish Museum. It's called a Gregor for Ava and Agnes. Like the Angry Women drawings, it's first names only, but we might put together pretty quickly here. This is Agnes Martin and Ava Hess, two artists whom she knew and who influenced her work in lots of different ways. And so, and this drawing is a grid. It's a pretty compact, it's a small drawing, maybe only 10 inches square with the grid set within it. And you can almost recognize, you can definitely recognize each of those artists' work within it, but it's it's Louise's grid for sure. And so how she draws art history, I think, just points us in all different kinds of directions. This isn't just, you know, a feminist abstract painter who can make big canvases as good as Franz Klein, right? Or kind of insert herself as a kind of athletic feminist, lesbian, descendant of abstract expressionism. I think that's often how Louise's work is framed. But rather, to really consider her work seriously means we have to kind of grapple with the stories that that we tell about the canons of abstract painting, if you will, abstract expressionism, minimalist painting. I think she, you know, she inserts herself and and revises those stories, too. She avoids straight lines in her paintings. Not not always, but but a lot. So you mentioned a Gregor for, for Ava and Agnes. That's a title construction Fishman uses a number of times. A, a Gregor for this, a Gregor from that. What does Gregor mean in Yiddish? And what does that meaning tell us or suggest to us about how Fishman may have thought thought about what we see in some of the drawings as being tangible, albeit fantastical, sort of abstract things. Yeah, well, it sounds like you might have some ideas about this too, Tyler. I love this question. As far as, far as I know, there are only two Gregor drawings, which she made for the Jewish holiday of Purim, sort of rattling noisemakers used uh, during Purim, and she made them for the Jewish Museum. I think Louise's story about this is that the Jewish Museum was to auction these off, and then they wound up accessioning them. And so, yeah, in addition to a Gregor for Ava and Agnes, which is from 1992, there's also, oh, also the same year, a, Gre a Gregor from Mesa Verde. 1992. So just the year prior, she would have she went to New Mexico uh, and visited Agnes Martin a few times. And this is coming on the heels of a devastating fire to her studio in upstate New York. She's really struggling 
with with chronic fatigue syndrome and also just then the energy and will to paint. And so revisiting Agnes Martin and seeing her work, both physically and a kind of talking with her about her process, returned Louise to both the grid and a Buddhist practice of meditation and the grid as a meditative action. And so when she got back from that trip, she started making small books, um, Leporello books. And the first one is in the exhibition book one. And you can absolutely tell, you know, uh, the influence of Agnes Martin and how it's a hand-drawn pencil grid that shifts and changes. It doesn't ever cover the entire page as a grid, but it changes in terms of its contours and its constructions. And then towards the end of the book, it's more collage-like with staples and rips and tears. But you had you asked about the Gregor being this kind of symbol. I mean, these small drawings are indicators of how Louise, her worldview, and really incorporated Jewish tradition, deeply embedded in her family and in her process. So I love that these are regular drawings that are both dedicated to other women artists and experiences that also gave Louise renewed life. I mean, she came back from this trip to New Mexico and was able to make work again. And a lot of that is in the drawings. It's in the works on paper. So some of the very first drawings in the exhibition are rubbings of stones that she had picked up or a kind of imprint, a charcoal imprint of her hands as a kind of reminder that she exists, you know, this very simple mark of her body on the paper. I'm glad you brought up the books, the narrative or eh, nearly narrative artist book. There are a bunch of them in the show. How did she make and use the book form? Why was it something she was attracted to enough to go back to it over and over again? So much in this exhibition is defined by her interest in the ground of a particular work. So there's paintings on corrugated paper, sketches on graph paper. So she's she's interested for many reasons in a kind of given structure. You know, this is true of the grid and her paintings, for instance, and how she can innovate on that structure. So the book was already a given structure. Um, and these are Leporello books, which are kind of unfold from the spine continuously, like an accordion. And she came back to them. She first started them in the early 90s, as I mentioned, as this meditative practice. It was a way for her to return to art making after traumatic experience of studio fire. But it was also a way to have discipline every day and sort of approach uh, repetitive, but yet always fundamentally different approaches to grid and to color. It was small and handheld. She really loved that aspect of it. And starting in the early 90s, too, with a sort of recommitment to her study of Buddhist practice, she understood that the Leporello books were, they had sort of came from Asia, from uh, Japan and China, as these kinds of passports that a pilgrim would take along the path of the Buddha collecting stamps while they're following this path. So she understood them as meditative objects in many respects, and then also really enjoyed their formal properties, which you can really see in the exhibition. There are a number of older Leporello books that are smaller, like Book One, Book of Abuse, Down and Dirty, which is a book for, for Bertha Harris, and a more recent one from 2013 called Ingrid to her spouse, Ingrid Nubo, where she's, except in the one for Ingrid, these books by and large are discrete vignettes where she's letting the pages dry while they're open. And then starting in 2011, she started making larger Leporello books that are more like a moleskin notebook in Venice, mixing her own colors, um, mixing her own egg tempera paint to make vibrant colors and really trying to capture an atmospheric sense of Venice and also its architectural detail. She was fascinated learning about the history of, you know, there's like of who makes and reproduces and repairs tiled floors, for instance, or walls or doorknobs. And so she wanted to reproduce a sense of architecture and atmosphere in Venice in these books. And those books she would often, those later Vaporetto Leporellos, which she would have continued making, I imagine, with, with even more travel to Venice, started around 2011 up through 2017 or in the show. 
And a lot of times those, you can tell that those pages were allowed to dry against each other. So there's all this evidence of touch or even of her fingertips, but of paint drying against one another. So they really become object-like and something that she carried throughout her career. And of course, in Venice, she would have had to wait a little longer for everything to dry. <laughs> there would have been an extra layer of, of intentionality there. I also wanted to ask about the 75, 76-ish drawings and paintings she made of a kind of, I don't know, I want to call it a folded form, even though you know the works aren't actually folded. There are these abstractions in which these geometric kind of folded origami recalling shapes act upon hover in space and, and, and seem to be floating and, and acting on their own. Where do those works come from? They're really, really, really fascinating. <laughs> They're really beautiful and affecting. In 1976, Louise was invited to Chicago. She was an artist in residence and or instructor at the School of the Art Institute for just a few months in 1976. And the way she tells the story is that she thought she would have a studio, but she didn't. She had sort of a studio apartment. So she had to work more small and more portably. So started working on paper, although these are pretty substantially sized, I think, you know, they're all about 30 by 22 inches. So they do have quite a presence. But this series that in the exhibit, the, the exhibition, A Question of Emphasis is organized according to process. So there's grids, there's transfers. This section I've called flat folds, and they're all in this section. And in each one, she's sort of tackling a central shape that is quite angular, but also quite contained almost like a diamond or, you know, it looks like it might be a recognizable shape, but there's always some twist. So it looks like, you know, the top corner of paper might have been folded in. She's also clearly working on the space around that central shape, which looks like it would have been painted over and then scratched out and erased and then painted over again. So there are a number of kind of possible paths that get envisioned in these works and then resolved. So you can see her process so visibly. And the room in this exhibition dedicated to this series also has a lithograph that Louise made in 1965 when she was a student here at the University of Illinois. She received her MFA in 1965 here in Urbana-Champaign called Black Architecture, where she sets out less than a decade in advance similar kinds of interests of a central shape and structure around it, but never with rigidity. So edges are always blurred or you can see evidence of process. You know, you can see her thinking in the materiality of her paintings. And then the series kind of concludes with, it kind of concludes with It's Good to Have Limits from 1977, which I had only seen reproduced in black and white in that infamous third issue of the journal Heresies that Louise was on the, the um, editorial team for. And it goes completely to the page, to the edges of the page. It goes completely to the edges of the page where the central shape takes up the entire paper. That's in the J.P. Morgan Chase art collection who loaned to the show. So I, I'm only seeing it in person for the first time when we unpacked it, which is great. Um, it has so much more color than the black and white reproduction, obviously. So it was quite a, a great surprise to see it. But through this series, it's all sort of oil and wax on this paper. You can tell how she's introducing a problem, which is this central shape. What shapes does it take? What are its characteristics? What are its colors? How does it turn around? How does it move? How is it located on this ground? And then ultimately how it winds up extending to the edges of the pages. She has shown this work through the years. I think one of her first solo exhibitions in New York in, the, in 1976, she showed some of these drawings. There's also a really terrific interview with Lynn Blumenthal and Kate Horsfield, the founders of Video Data Bank in Chicago. They had this extensive video series interviewing artists, which was really a feminist gesture, set the camera in front of the artist and ask them to talk about their work for an hour. But of course, it's quite experimental in its form. There's a live feedback monitor right behind Louise and the whole thing starts with like a very extreme close up on the 
on Louise's face on the live feedback monitor. So, and in this video, Louise is talking about this work and about her, her process and her confidence really as an artist. I think around this time, she was really drawn to sculpture and sort of she was she had been making paintings on sort of cut out wood wooden sculpture wooden circles cut out wooden circles that she had found in New York or and then started making so she still carried a lot of ambivalences about painting and her place in it as a lesbian feminist woman who you know has always sought modes of belonging i think and in the exhibition, it's probably it's probably a dozen or so drawings installed in one room with the lithograph from her MFA time here and the piece that was reproduced in the Heresies Journal to kind of see and the video to chart this long interest in a particular form. And then oddly enough, it wound up helping her recommit to painting. I think she could have gone in a few different directions, but she wound up returning to painting on canvas after her brief sojourn in Chicago. These works strike me as as coming from two particular places. First, I, I think they should be considered as part of the feminist women artists response to big male minimalism. Never ceases to amaze me how we haven't seen that show anywhere yet. And they also seem to descend from or be informed by Dorothea Rockburn's folded works, sort of collages, sort of paintings, sort of other things, cardboards, of the early 1970s. Do, do we know if she was thinking about responding to or engaging with either of those histories and, you know, in the context of 1975, presence? I wish I knew about the Dorothea Rockburn question in particular. And yeah, I still have so many questions for Louise, and that's a really good one. But absolutely engaging with minimal painting. I mean, she had just come out of a period in the early 70s. I think right after graduate school at Illinois, she thought she wanted to make hard edge abstractions. And there are a few canvases and a lot of drawings. Um, I didn't select any for the show and just because I didn't love them. Um, but I also wonder if it's it's really part of her history where she's, you know, really making colorful blocks, very rigid of color and line, a la Ellsworth Kelly um, and Sala Witt. I know we're two artists that she was really in conversation with in her work. And then there was this break, you know, around the women's movement and feminist consciousness raising where Louise wanted to disavow anything that had to do with men in painting. So this was a time when she she was still making grids, but she was cutting up canvas and hand sewing them. Or it's a piece of canvas taped into a frame. So I think in 1976, she's still kind of in the wake of that response to minimalism. And, and Rockburn, we just don't know. We just don't know. You know, I never heard her talk about Dorothea Rockburn, but that doesn't mean she wasn't thinking about her. In Lynn Blumenthal and Kate Horsfield's really terrific interview with her, she talks about not having artist community and doing that on purpose. You know, she dated writers and women in lots of other disciplines, um, anthropologists, and kind of didn't feel a sense of belonging among artists for a long time. And she, she talks about that in, in the 1976-77 video interview. And yeah, these, these would be good questions for Louise. Work and arguments for, for art historians and critics now and in the future, to be sure. Amy Powell, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tyler. I appreciate it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.